You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. When the pandemic hit, millions of people converted their kitchens, living rooms, and bedrooms into home offices. Now, three years later, companies want workers to return to the buildings they vacated. The days of working from home are fading for more employees, now being called back to the office. Disney recently announcing its employees will be required to spend four days a week on site. Google will begin tracking worker badge data and include office attendance and performance reviews to get everyone in line. You're going to go head-to-head with Goldman Sachs, who want people back five days a week. You've got government and tech. Do you think you'll ever get back to pre-COVID levels? Millions of people around the world who got used to doing their jobs from home during the pandemic and grew to like it are now being told by their employers that it's time to return to the office, at least some of the time. It might seem easy enough for everyone to just go back to the way things were before, but working remotely for a couple of years changed the way a lot of employees think about their jobs and whether they need to commute to and from an office to be productive. Companies, meanwhile, are trying to figure out how to adapt to these shifts in corporate life and balance the needs of their business with the expectations of their workforce. As Bloomberg senior management and workplace reporter Matthew Boyle found out, that is not an easy thing to get right. And every country and every company seems to have a different approach. You have legislation either pending or proposed or actually being passed that is going to codify, protect the right to work from home. We've seen these laws pop up in Ireland. They've come up in the Netherlands, beyond Europe as well, even as far as Canada, you're seeing right to disconnect. But then in the U.S., so we're kind of on our own in the U.S. You're left to the whims of your employer, your organization, your boss. I'm Wes Kosova. Today on The Big Take, the tricky transition from WFH to RTO. Matt, glad to have you back. I see you're in the office today. Yes, very happy to be here, Wes. It seemed like for a moment there in the middle of the pandemic, everyone was saying the era of the five-day at the office work week is over. This is a seismic change, and it's never going to be the same. And now it's kind of looking like maybe that's not true. Yeah, Wes, I mean, your question really speaks to one of the big problems talking about this issue is that everybody wants to black and white this issue. Either the office is dead and no one's ever going back ever, 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 or remote work is just for losers in their pajamas and everybody better get back five days a week. And neither of those things are true. But that's what gets a lot of the headlines. That's what you sometimes hear from certain business leaders, you know, (laughs) Elon Musk perhaps, But you you chuckle, but it's like when he he calls remote work, quote, immoral, 
I mean, we've really reached a new, a new level of this debate. So the truth is, as always or usually, you know, somewhere down the middle. But what we really wanted to do with this story is spend a little less time focused on the big companies that capture our attention, like Google and Goldman Sachs, and a little more time spanning the world, you know, to sort of see, okay, what's going on in Europe and how does that compare to Asia and why? And what's going on in Paris versus London? That's what we were really able to accomplish with this. The good thing about three and a half years into the pandemic is that we finally have a lot of good data as well. It's important that you mentioned countries around the world, because this is one of the things I found really interesting about your story is how different the approaches are in different countries. So can you kind of paint us a picture of what the work from home, work from office world looks like right now? Even within countries, it's not one story. It's not monolithic. Take the U.S. just for starters before I broaden out. In the U.S., usually the bigger the city, the, the higher the rate of remote work. And whether that's due to the fact that, you know, in New York and other big cities, we got to spend a lot of time schlepping to an office, or whether that's because in big cities you have more so-called knowledge workers or creative types, jobs that are more conducive to remote work, or whether that in the U.S. is because we have bigger houses and we're more likely to have a wonderful work-from-home arrangement in our basement or in that third bedroom that no one's using rather than being cramped in a, in a small apartment in Hong Kong with four roommates that you just want to get the heck out of. So there in, in that city, and this is something we've written about before, but you know, you've got tiny apartments, but you also have a very efficient public transport system. So that's going to give residents there fewer reasons to work from home. I also came across some fresh research by, by Nicholas Bloom and his crew, which who are sort of the gurus of remote work research out there in Stanford. And they found that Asian nations, because they did a better job of keeping COVID under wraps in the pandemic's first year, people there didn't get as accustomed to working from home as we did in, in the U.S. To move to Europe, what fascinated me there was that you have legislation either pending or proposed or actually passed that is going to codify, protect the right to work from home, to protect the right of a worker to disconnect uh, from their employer after normal business hours. We've seen these laws pop up in Ireland. They've come up in the Netherlands. There is a pan-European movement around this right to disconnect. You're seeing this legislation being proposed and passed. That's a policy solution that I don't really think we're going to be seeing in the U.S. anytime soon, certainly not in, in the halls of Congress. We may see some statewide protections around you know, the right to work remotely. But then in the U.S., so we're kind of on our own in the U.S. You're left to the whims of your employer, your organization, your boss in many cases. And what do we know about how workers feel about coming back to the office versus working from home or just having some sort of flexibility? I think they really, they don't mind it if there is a reason. There is nothing worse than spending eight hours on Zoom calls that you could have had from your home office or just from, or from Starbucks or from anywhere. If you're coming into an office, you want some intentionality about it. You want to be part of a brainstorming session, or perhaps it's just something more informal, like an after work gathering. That's what I think employers need to realize, that if you're going to do a policy, you need to be going in for a reason. And usually it's around your team itself. I mean, it's one thing to just say, okay, the whole company has to be in. It's like, well, that's great, you know, but I'm not really interacting with the engineers today, or I have nothing to do with the sales team. Make it very specific to your team, to your function for why you're in. And I think you're going to get a lot less pushback. 
Matt, one thing we hear from CEOs a lot is that part of the office culture is you bump into people in the office and you have impromptu conversations that lead to really good ideas. And I find that that's actually true. I do run into people and get good ideas. But I also find that when I'm working at home, that sometimes the company gets more work out of me because I'm just focused and sitting here working all day instead of having all those conversations. The number of times I've bumped into someone and bounced a story idea off them and realized it was either A, a good idea, or B, I should just shut up about it and move on. I mean, those are valuable. But let's say if I'm writing a story, doing heads down work, that is when being home, I think, really benefits any sort of desk-based worker. You don't have the constant drumbeat. You know, you might still have the pinging of Slack, but at least you can turn that off. Um, but you're not going to have people so-called desk bombing you, just sort of sidling up and saying, hey, hey, Wes, how about those? Nicks, you know, you don't really need that when you want to get heads down focused work done. So I think there's definitely a value for, for both of those. It's, it's figuring out how much time do you need to spend at home to get that sort of private, more focused work done? And what are the opportunities for you to be in an office? And again, having those more sort of spontaneous connections that I agree certainly do happen. It's just sometimes it seems like a little bit more is made of them. A lot of interactions people have in an office, especially underrepresented minorities, are not wonderful. They're not wonderful at all. They're microaggressions. And that's a big reason why when you polled, for example, black Americans, they were much happier, felt much more productive and satisfied in the early uh, months of the pandemic when everybody was remote. Matt, there also seems to be sort of an about face on the messaging from companies. During the pandemic, a lot of companies were really quick to say, even though our workforce is at home, they've never been more efficient and never been more productive. And now that the pandemic is behind us and people can come in, people are saying, working from home isn't as efficient, it isn't as productive, and we need people to come back in. And it's sometimes the same companies. Yeah, there was this sort of sense of, okay, I think, okay, we can do this. This is amazing. This was surprising, again, to, to at least to some people, those who didn't really study remote work. Now, though, as some of the more data is trickling out, you are seeing cases where uh, sometimes people will cherry pick a new bit of research that comes out that says, for example, uh, you know, Indian data entry workers were 18 percent less productive, you know, while working remote. Everybody jumps on that. And on the other hand, you still have, you know, reams of data and research showing from different researchers that call center workers can be as productive, if not more productive and happier uh, working remotely. I mean, you look at a call center worker, for the most part, you can be doing that from home. We are at least finally seeing some more nuanced and progressive uh, approaches to this with a lot of companies settling on some type of hybrid. And again, a hybrid doesn't always work. You can really screw up a hybrid plan if you don't uh, spend a lot of time researching it and figuring out what types of work your workers do and where do they best do those jobs. I've got some data for you from Gallup, which is a very reputable polling organization that shows that when you go from three to four to five days in the office, employee engagement kind of drops off a cliff because you might have people who are very used to three days in the office and they had their life sort of fixated around that. I know when I'm home, I know when I'm in the office. And then you move that to four or five days kind of on a whim, it'll uproot a lot of people's lives. And of course, you're still going to you're going to lose some of those people. And that's an important point because this balance of power between companies and workers is always slightly shifting during the pandemic when there was this very tight labor market. Work from home was one of the incentives. I remember people would say it's like the first question they would often hear from new job applicants. What is your flexible work arrangement? And now that the labor market isn't quite as tight and 
people aren't as willing to leave. Maybe there aren't as many opportunities. Companies seem to be understanding that they've got a little bit more power. I mean, if you're a smart employer, you're going to be offering at least some type of flexible work arrangement for the people you want to hire. So while, yes, the balance of power has shifted back certainly more towards the employer in recent months, I still think if you have skills that are in demand, you should be able, if, if not to write your own ticket, then at least to have some say over you know, where, when, and how you'll work. After the break... With fewer people working downtown, what will happen to all that office space? Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. They're statuesque, vast and staggering, and they're empty. Skyscrapers and office buildings once stacked high with businesses are experiencing high vacancy rates in the U.S., nearly 19 percent, five and a half percent higher than before the pandemic. Matt, another thing that comes into play in these discussions about return to office seems to be office real estate in cities. Companies have a lot of office space and they don't want it to stand empty. Yes, and 20% of it in the U.S. is empty right now. Uh, office vacancy rates are at an all-time high, and with interest rates rising, a lot of the loans that are back in these offices are coming due. Companies are just wholesale, sometimes 30, 40, even 50% of their real estate. And many times, these were long overdue moves. You know, companies grew up fast. Let's say, if you're especially if you're a hot, fast-growing tech startup, you'd sometimes have five or six offices in the same city, in like Austin. You know, we got we got offices everywhere. We just need them. We no, you didn't really need six different ones. So consolidate into one or two, probably a wise idea. But yes, there is a reckoning here for the commercial real estate sector. And unless you have what they call, you know, class A real estate with all the bells and whistles, uh, you're probably, you know, on the hunt for some tenants right now. You know, why is it that 80% of offices traditionally were, were just individual desks and cubicles and only 20% was collaborative space? That should be flipped. And in a lot of workspaces and offices, it is flipping right now. A lot more space set up for what we call neighborhoods. You'll do some work with your team, but there's also space for hanging out, a lot more open space, outdoor space. 
So we are seeing some more creative approaches to how offices are laid out. And if you don't want to get creative, it's going to cost you. The issue is that commercial real estate folks, it's a very risk averse industry historically. Because if you made a mistake on a seven-year lease, you were going to get reminded of that mistake for the next seven years. So they've often not really, you know, let's say taken chances or pushed the boundaries because all you had to do was line up a bunch of desks and cubes and, you know, everyone had to go there because where else were you going to do your work? Now that people have a choice about where work gets done, I think offices need to make some hard choices about what these offices look like. And it's not just companies that are bringing pressure on workers to return. It's politicians and governments. You see the mayor of Washington, D.C. telling Joe Biden, you have to bring federal workers back to the office because the downtown businesses can't survive. We need decisive action by the White House to either get most federal workers back to the office most of the time or to realign their vast property holdings for use by the local government by nonprofits, by businesses, and by any user willing to revitalize it. D.C., New York, you know, Mayor Adams has been very vocal. I'm trying to fill up office buildings, and I'm telling J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, listen, I need your people back into office so we can build the ecosystem. But it just sort of speaks to the fact that, yes, this is having a massive impact on downtown economies, but not in every city. That's one thing I learned from doing this story is that kind of a lot depends on how your city is laid out. There was a great report recently from the McKinsey Global Institute that found that if uh, sort of pandemic attendance rates hold, as much as $800 billion of real estate value is going to evaporate by 2030 in nine cities around the world. And that includes New York and San Francisco, which of course gets so much attention here, but also includes cities like Paris and Munich. But in some cities, we do see that when you have a city that's not just set up as a downtown business district where all you have is offices and coffee shops and, you know, delis, when you actually have people living and working and playing in a city, uh, the impact there is much more muted. And that's what this McKinsey report found, which I found very, very interesting. But you're right. The price tag at the end of the day, I asked them uh, what their worst case scenario was. They said $1.3 trillion in, in real estate value gone by 2030 in these nine global cities if attendance rates continue to fall or even sort of plateau where they are. Because right now in the U.S., attendance is not going up. We'll see if it goes up. We will see if we can get above 50% of uh, pre-COVID levels in these 10 major cities that are often tracked and that we track on the Bloomberg terminal. But I don't know. The past two years, we've thought, okay, Labor Day, everyone's going to come back, right? No. For two years straight, no, no, no. So we'll see what holds this time around. I can imagine a lot of our listeners who don't work in an office, maybe they work in manufacturing or they work in retail or drive a delivery vehicle, seeing this conversation saying, oh, boo-hoo, these people have to go to work. Yeah, it, there's that's been sort of a common theme throughout the pandemic is that I think we spend far too much time focusing on desk workers. And uh, in terms of the coverage, in terms of the research reports, it's always, you know, what are the software engineers uh, going to do at, at Google? And, you know, what are the journalists at Bloomberg and The New York Times doing with their RTO policy? And meanwhile, you have more than half of America frontline workers, nurses, teachers, doctors, truck drivers, Walmart cashiers, 
But I think a step back perhaps is required so that, again, it doesn't just become black or white or, you know, a conflict. You know, then all of a sudden you've got sort of the frontline workers and the knowledge workers sniping at each other when everyone should be realizing the way all of us are working has changed. And I think there have been improvements, maybe not as noticeable improvements for frontline employees, but I think work is changing no matter what type of work you do. And Matt, you write about people at the very other end of that spectrum, what you call digital nomads. Yeah, and these are people who, throughout the pandemic or at some point in the pandemic, just said, look, I've got a job that I know I can do anywhere, from anywhere in the world, not just at Starbucks. I'm talking about Portugal. I'm talking about the beach, you know, and I'm very highly compensated. And my employer either doesn't know where I am or doesn't care as long as I get my stuff done. Some of them moved upstate New York to the Catskills or Lake George or something like that, and they used to live in Manhattan or or one of the nearby counties. Uh, But others went much further afield, and countries, realizing this, started to roll out all sorts of incentives, remote work visas, special visas if you bought real estate there, although not everyone did. You also saw some cities in the U.S. as well doing this, giving incentives to more far-flung cities who suddenly said, oh, wow, we, we can attract a lot of workers. Boise is a perfect example. Boise, Idaho. I don't think a lot of tech workers were living there in, let's say, the 2008. But during the pandemic, a place like that became much more popular. So much so that actually property prices, guess what happens to property prices when a lot of well-off, well-to-do remote workers show up? They, they skyrocket. Sometimes the locals get a little bit annoyed at that. And then guess what happens? Sometimes the companies say, oh, by the way, we now want you back. Um, You have issues around how do we tax those workers? We have issues around how do we pay them? Do you give a 10% pay cut to someone who moves from San Francisco to Boise or not? What we've seen with digital nomads, though, is that whereas cities like Lisbon and a lot of European cities had been very popular, we're now seeing a bit of a migration. Both Portugal and Ireland have kind of thrown out the welcome mat to some of these digital nomads, rescinding some of the benefits and visa-related stuff they had extended in years past. So those digital nomads are smart people. They are just packing up and moving to places like Seoul, Ho Chi Minh City, Manila. So what impact they will have on those local economies remains to be seen. When we come back, so what does the office work week of the future look like? Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So Matt, we're seeing companies that had two days at home now saying they want three days in the office. They want four days in the office. Where do you think this is heading? Well, I hate to say it depends, but a lot does depend. If you go from three days in the office to four and your turnover spikes, you know, and you lose some of your most creative workers, some of your best and brightest or some of your younger employees, you know, people that you had spent a lot of time recruiting and saying you are the future of the organization. If you then lose those folks, I would hope that a CEO might rethink that policy uh, unless there's something else he or she is really, you know, gaining from it. On the other hand, you know, you could go from three days to four days. And if you're giving people reasons to be on all four of those days and people are able to balance and integrate uh, their work and their life together, I mean, it's really funny, Wes. We did a column the other week from Sarah Carmichael, one of our opinion columnists, who said these RTO battles sometimes pit spouses against each other. Where and, and I know that for a fact. I'm in currently three days a week. My wife is in two days a week in offices in Manhattan. That works out very well because that equals five. But if uh, let's just say one of us moves to four um, or my wife moves from two to three, that is going to shake up our, our life a little bit. Not as much as if you know we had two young kids in diapers, but we do have two kids and we, we're balancing a ton of stuff outside of work and outside of the home. What impact will that have? We shall certainly see, but I would hope that any business leader, any organization is not just going to do this as a knee-jerk reaction or just because they read something about you know moving from here to there. Talk to your employees, survey them, ask them you know, how the current policy is going. Matt, always great talking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Wes. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Mo Barrow and Michael Falero. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.